I'm Steve and I've got uh, today's second reading which is Daniel chapter 8. We'll read the whole chapter. In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision after the one that had already appeared to me. In my vision, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa in the province of Elam. In the vision, I was beside the Ulai Canal. I looked up and there before me was a ram with two horns standing beside the canal and the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other but grew up later. I watched the ram as it charged toward the west and the north and the south. No animal could stand against it and none could rescue from its power. It did as it pleased and became great. As I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between its eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. It came toward the two-horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal and charged at it in great rage. I saw it attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering its two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against it. The goat knocked it to the ground and trampled on it and none could rescue the ram from its power. The goat, came, the goat became very great but at the height of its power the large horn was broken off and in its place four prominent horns grew up toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came another horn which started small but grew in power to the south and the east and toward the beautiful land. It grew until it reached the host of the heavens and it threw some of the starry host down to earth and trampled on them. It set itself up to be a great, as great as the commander of the army of the Lord. It took away the daily sacrifice from the Lord and his sanctuary was thrown down. Because of rebellion, the Lord's people and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did, and truth was thrown to the ground. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to him, How long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled, the vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, the surrender of the sanctuary, and the trampling underfoot of the Lord's people. He said to me, it will take 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. While I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, there before me stood one who looked like a man, and I heard a man's voice from the Uli calling, Gabriel, Tell this man the meaning of the vision. As he came near the place where I was standing, I was terrified and fell prostrate. Son of man, he said to me, understand that the vision concerns the time of the end. While he was speaking to me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. Then he touched me and raised me to my feet. He said, I'm going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath because the vision concerns the appointed time of the end. The two-horned ram 
that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece and the large horn between its eyes is the first king. The four horns that replace the one that was broken off represent four kingdoms that would emerge from this nation but will not have the same power. In the latter part of their reign, when rebels have become completely wicked, a fierce-looking king, a master of intrigue, will arise. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy those who are mighty, the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper and he will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been given to you is true, but seal up the vision, for it concerns the distant future. I, Daniel, was worn out. I lay exhausted for several days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, thanks, Steve. It'd be great if you could keep your Bible open as we work through. That's uh, quite an uh, interesting story, so uh, it'd be good to have that open as we uh, work through. Uh, but as we begin, I'm going to uh, pray, so please pray with me. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you that it is a light for our feet and that it is food for our souls. And so we pray now as we consider your word that uh, you might be speaking to us, revealing who you are and what the pattern of history is and will be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In life, there's winners and there's losers. Uh, my dad found this out recently in a fencing tournament that he was involved in. If you don't know what fencing is, uh, it's not putting up fences, but it's a sport where you fight with swords. Uh, my dad's been uh, doing fencing since he was in his 20s, and when he retired from work, he took it up again. And so recently he went, went to a tournament and was involved in the Oceana's Veterans Fencing Tournament. And so he was there, and he didn't expect to do that well. Uh, it was his first tournament in decades, but he was just going along for fun, just to uh, see what it's like, see how he'd go, and just for the enjoyment. But surprisingly, he somehow made it to the final match, uh, the championship match, the playoff match, and he was up against this guy uh, that everyone thought was, was the favourite. Everyone thought this guy was going to win the whole tournament right from the start. His name was Norbert, and I think uh, his name alone shows you that this is a seniors fencing tournament. I don't think there's anyone with the name Norbert under about the age of 55, and so uh, Norbert was the, was the um, expected favourite to win, and so my dad was playing against him. And the way fencing works is that it's uh, a lot of rounds of sudden death. And so you start, and the first to touch the other one with your sword gets a point, and then you stop, and then you start again, and it's first to 10 points. And so the match started off, and do you know what happened? Norbert got the first hit, and he scored a point. Then he got the second hit and scored a point. And my dad's thinking, oh, well, here we go. Uh, he's going to win, just as expected. But then do you know what happened? As the match went on more and more, my dad slowly found his groove, and he scored a point, then he scored another point, and before he knew it, it was six all. 
And then from there, my dad stormed home and actually won 10-6, which in fencing is a slaughter. And so uh, here's this guy that, uh, that everyone expected to win, and he didn't. And so now my dad is actually the Oceania champion for uh, over 70. So I've got a photo of, um, of what he was like when he was getting his... Um, if, if we, oh, there we go. So there's my dad as he was being awarded his gold medal. And poor old Norbert didn't get anything. They don't give silver medals, apparently. They only give gold medals. And so my dad found out that day that there's winners and there's losers. And we know that's what life is like, don't we? In life, there are winners and there's losers. And we all want to work, we all work hard to try and be on the side of the winners, to be winners in life. And so we, at uni and at school, we study hard. We want to pass our exams because we don't want to fail. We want to be winners at studying, not losers. At work, we want to be on the side of the winner, the one who brings in all of the money, who gets all of the, the credit and the plaudits. Even as parents, we want our kids to be winners at life. We want them to succeed. And in fact, now there's that saying, I don't know if you've heard it or not, but it's quite a common thing now to hear this saying about being on the right side of history. That is, in other words, to be a winner, to be on the winning side, not just of a fencing tournament, not just of an exam or work project, but to be on the winning side of all of human history, to be on the right side of history. And that sounds great. I'm sure we all hear that and we're like, yeah, I do want to be on the winning side of history. But the question is, well, how do we actually know whether we're on the winning side of history or not? And in a sense, that's what Daniel chapter 8 is about. It tells us, that, it tells us about the one who controls all of history, who holds history in the palm of his hand. The one who controls not just the past, or the present, but also the future. And if we want to be on the right side of history, the winning side of history, then we need to be on the side of the one who controls history. And Daniel 8 shows us that that is God. God holds history, and in particular the future, in the palm of His hand. See, Daniel 8 shows us that God is the king of the future, both of Daniel's future, but also of our future. And surely, the one who holds history, who holds the future in his hand, is the one who will win all of history, who will be on the right side of history. And so, uh, in our passage, God shows Daniel that he's the king of Daniel's future, and he does it by giving him a look into the future, 400 years into the future, or at least four parts of it. And he does it with this vision, and the vision starts in quite a strange place. Did you notice where it is that it starts? Have a look at verse 2. In my vision, I saw myself at the citadel of Susa, in the province of Elam. In the vision, I was beside the Ulai Canal. Now, if we don't know our geography, that might not sound that significant. But what this is talking about, or what this is telling us, is that this is not Babylon. Daniel lives in Babylon, but this is not the Babylon. This is actually Susa, which is one of the cities that became one of the key cities of the Persian Empire. And so straight away, we're given a clue as to who this vision is about, or at least part of who it's about. From there, we then see this animal comes up, a ram with two horns, one that's a little bit bigger than the other and comes up later. Now, when we hear the ram, we might think to ourselves, oh yeah, I know what they are, they're male sheep. 
and they are. But what that might do is conjure a picture in our head of fluffy barnyard animals, those kind of puffy animals that we see when we go to a petting zoo. We might picture in our head something like that. That might be what we think. But actually, that's not what rams are. They aren't small and fluffy. Rams are monstrous. They're big, heavy, muscled, angry. It's more like this. That's what rams are. And we see this ram here, and it's charging around the world. West, north, south, destroying anything in its path. No one is able to stand against this ram. Until a goat comes along. A goat with a giant horn on its head. Now, again, we might think of domesticated farm animals, but that's not the picture we're meant to get at all. As I was preparing for this sermon, I stumbled upon a website that listed the 10 most dangerous goats in the world. Now, I'm sure you weren't expecting to hear that goats can be dangerous, but in fact, they can. This was the number one. It's the, um, it's the Majorai goat. And they weigh up to 70 kilos, which is more than many of us here. And these are huge and aggressive goats that will attack anything that gets in its way. And you can see how big their horns are there. Giant horns, they're aggressive animals, big and muscled. And that's what this goat is like. It's got this giant horn between its eyes and it sees the ram and it comes charging across the land at the ram and it attacks the ram and it defeats the ram and it tramples the ram. And this goat becomes extremely powerful, he's unstoppable. And as this vision is unfolding, and as it continues to unfold, it makes clear to us that worldly powers will rise. But they'll also fall. The the ram rises and then falls. The goat rises and then just at its peak, at the height of its power, the horn is snapped off. The giant horn between its eyes and in its place come four smaller horns. And out of those four smaller horns comes an even smaller horn out of one of them. And it starts small, but it grows in power until eventually it reaches up to heaven. It even takes the stars from heaven and casts them down onto the ground and it tramples them. In fact, it gets so arrogant that it sets itself up against God, against the prince of the host. And that's what Daniel's vision is. That's what God shows Daniel about the future. And as he watches it unfold, he then hears how long this is going to last for. And did you see how long it is? Verse 14, it tells us, 2,300 evenings and mornings. And now we'll consider the specifics of what that might mean in a minute. But the point we're meant to see is this. There'll be a limit to it. The horn won't be given free reign forever. Because God is the king of Daniel's future, and he'll limit this horn's influence. And so, that's the reality of this vision that Daniel is given. That's the reality of the future that's coming. But of course, it's not an easy future to understand. It's not an easy vision to understand. And so, for Daniel, he doesn't doesn't get it. He doesn't know what's going on. And so, God has to reveal to him what it actually means. And he starts with the ram. Did you see who the ram is? Have a look at verse 20. The two-horned ram that you saw 
represents the kings of Media, Media and Persia. It's the Medes and the Persians. We've heard about these guys before. And quite amazingly, that at the time of this vision, that is the third year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, this is actually what's starting to unfold. A man named Cyrus is starting to unite the Medes and the Persians. Uh, Cyrus was the leader of Persia, which was essentially a tributary state of the Medes. That is, a small nation that paid money to the Medes for protection. Uh, it's a little bit like Tasmania with us. They're kind of out on the edge somewhere, they belong to us, and they're not really part of mainland Australia. And that's kind of what's going on here. The Persians are just this small part of the Mede Empire. But then, in 550 BC, again, at around this time, Cyrus led a rebellion against the Medes, and he actually won. And so what happened was that he essentially took over the Medes Empire, thus forming the beginning of the Medo-Persian Empire, which fits perfectly with the ram here. Two horns, one that starts smaller to begin with, the Persian Empire starting smaller, but actually growing bigger to be the dominant part of that empire. And from here, the rampage begins. Uh, like the ram in a vision, the Persian, Medo-Persian Empire will trample everything in its path. In fact, uh, within about 12 years, they'll have defeated even the Babylonian Empire. Remember Daniel chapter 5? See, like the ram in the vision, no one will be able to stop them. They'll do as they please and they'll become great. Worldly powers rise but they also fall. Because the goat comes along, and did you see who the goat is? Verse 21, the king of Greece. And in particular, the giant horn is their first king of, Greek, of the Greek Empire. Now, for those of us who know our history, we'll know that the first king of the Greek Empire was a man called Alexander the Great. Uh, perhaps the greatest military leader the world has ever known. It took him about 10 years to go from being the king of Greece to essentially being the king of everywhere. Uh, he'd conquered the whole known world by the time he was 32, uh, which is quite amazing. And just like the goat, he flew across the land, conquering everything at incredible speed. Uh, eventually, he stopped kind of halfway through conquering India, not because he was losing, but essentially because his soldiers said, it's too far from home, we want to go home. And so he stopped and he went back to Persia. But then, with his empire at its greatest, unrivaled in power, Alexander the Great died at 32. The horn was snapped off. Worldly powers rise, but they also fall. And from there, we see that history again aligns so well with what this vision is. Because when Alexander the Great died, his empire was divided into four parts under four of his generals. Uh, the four kingdoms were the Ptolemaic Kingdom, the Seleucid Empire, the Kingdom of Pergamon, and the Kingdom of Macedonia. Four smaller kingdoms come from the one greater kingdom. Four smaller horns come after the one greater horn is snapped off. See, worldly powers rise and fall. And as they do, God's people will be persecuted. Because we see that from one of these four one, the small horn that comes from one of the four horns. We see a small horn that rises and sets itself up against God. And again, we know who this is. It's a man named Antiochus Epiphanes. 
Uh, the word epiphanies means God manifest, and so that's His title for Himself, and the fact that that is His title for Himself tells you all that you need to know about this man, Antiochus. He saw himself as a God. He was the ruler of the Seleucid Empire, one of those four kingdoms that came from Alexander the Great's empire, and in the scheme of worldly powers, he's pretty small and insignificant, but he was actually of incredible significance to God's people, because he did exactly what God said he would. He set himself up against God and against God's people. Uh, we'll see more of this in coming weeks as we look at Daniel 10 to 12. But at least for here, we see that Antiochus did horrendous things to God's people. God's people were persecuted incredibly under Antiochus. Uh, he banned and burned the Torah, God's Word. He killed the high priest. He turned the altar in the temple into a pagan altar. He set a statue of Zeus in the temple. And quite possibly, though we don't know for sure, he set even a statue of himself in the temple. This was as bad as it could get for God's people. It would be a little bit like if our government outlawed Christianity, if they killed ministers, if they banned the reading of the Bible, if they then held satanic rituals inside churches and burned churches to the ground. That's a little bit like what's going on here and under Antiochus. It was incredible, extreme persecution of God's people. And so, do you see then why Daniel is appalled by this vision? That's how it leaves in verse 27. He's so appalled by it that he's le left in bed sick for several days. But the key to remember is that God is the king of Daniel's future. He's in charge. And so he puts a limit on it. Uh, that's what the 2,300 evenings and mornings is about. God will bring an end to the sacrilegious butcher tyrant Antiochus. Now, fascinatingly, uh, the particularly harsh persecution under Antiochus lasted for about three and a half years, which is approximately 1,150 days. Uh, there's an evening and a morning sacrifice in the temple, so two sacrifices. So, if you times 1,150 by two, the morning and evening sacrifice, it gets 2,300 as a figure. So, perhaps that's what the number is talking about. But either way, the important point is this, God will limit this butcher king's power. He will limit how long he's allowed to persecute God's people for. Because God is the king of the future, not Antiochus and not any other worldly power. God is the king and he will limit it. And so that's the vision that we're given. And what it's meant to show us is that God is the king of Daniel's future. But what also becomes clear as we look at it is that actually this is a pattern for all of human history. Think about the horn, for example. Uh, there's a small horn here that does horrendous things. But remember chapter 7? There's also a small horn in Daniel chapter 7. Here the small horn is Antiochus from the Greek Empire. It's a little horn who does horrible things. But in chapter 7, we see another different horn, a horn that's not Antiochus, but again, it's a little horn who does horrible things. And the point it's showing us is that this is the pattern of human history. There's good kings and there's bad kings. And every now and then, there's satanic, hideous kings. See, Daniel gives us a world where this will keep repeating over and over again. 
We see the same in the book of Revelation. And so what we therefore see with Daniel chapter 8 is that this is a pattern of human history, of the end times. That is the time after Jesus. And so not only is God the king of Daniel's future, he's also the king of our future. Which means that just like Daniel, we'll see throughout history that worldly powers will rise and fall. The Medo-Persian Empire rose and conquered all. No one could stand against them until someone did and they fell away. And thus came the goat, the Greek Empire, sweeping all before it, crushing and trampling Thuram, conquering everything so fast until the horn was snapped. Alexander the Great died and eventually his empire fell too, swept away by the Roman Empire. See, history is littered with worldly powers that rose and then fell. The Roman Empire, the Mongol Empire, the Ottoman Empire, the Spanish Empire, the Russian Empire, the British Empire, so many different empires throughout history that have risen and seemed unconquerable, that have seemed unstoppable until they weren't, until they fell. And even today, we have great worldly superpowers, just like the ram and the goat, powerful, impressive, unstoppable. Now, there's the might of America, the rising might of China, and both seem so powerful. But both of those will fall at some stage in 10 years or in 100 years. Worldly powers rise and fall. We even see that at the moment with Prince Philip in power for 70 years as prince. He rose and then he fell. Even here in Victoria, the Labour government seems unstoppable. They've, I don't know if you're aware of this, they've been in power for 20 of the last 24 years. Their mini empire has risen. But it too will fall at some stage. See, Daniel 8 reminds us that this is the pattern of human history. Worldly powers rise and then they fall. Which means that these worldly powers aren't our undoing or our saviours. See, it can be easy when we're under worldly powers that are hostile to us to think that this is the end, to think that they will be our undoing. In fact, some of us might be feeling that at the moment with the way our state government is going. In many ways, they're certainly hostile to God's people and to Christians. But Daniel 8 reminds us that they too will fall away, that eventually they'll be gone. See, they won't be our undoing. But by the same token, it means that worldly powers aren't our saviour. I still remember the morning of the, a few years ago after the Liberals won the surprise federal election and Scott Morrison, a Christian, became our Prime Minister. And there was a spring in the step of lots of Christians that day. I, I think many Christians thought, well, now that there's a Christian who's our Prime Minister, things will be different for us. Uh, the strong anti-Christian sentiment that's been growing in Australia will change. See, I think many Christians somehow looked on him as a saviour. But worldly powers aren't our saviour, just like they're not our undoing. Because worldly powers come and go. They rise and they fall. But God is trustworthy throughout it all, just like he was to Daniel and just like he was to his people in the sufferings that happened and that were predicted in Daniel 8. And so, at times, when we're under wicked, evil, uh, wicked and evil worldly powers, we don't need to lose heart. 
because it won't be long and someone else will be in their place. Someone else will be on the throne. They'll be gone soon enough. But God is trustworthy throughout it all. See, when we have a good leader, God is completely and entirely trustworthy. And when we have a bad leader, God is still entirely and completely trustworthy. See, this is the great encouragement that Daniel 8 gives us. It reminds us that God is still king and God will forever be king. While worldly powers rise and fall, God remains king throughout it all. But it's important that we remember and realize what kind of king God is or what that means that God is king. Because I wonder whether we often think that God being king is the same as me being king, us being king. That is, God being king is good for us. Now, of course, in a sense that's true. God being king is good when viewed over the long term. God's plan to rescue a sinful and rebellious world by sending His own Son, Jesus, to die on the cross for our sake, so that all who trust in Him might be saved. That is good. There's no doubt that that is a good thing. But the book of Daniel opens with four men, teenagers, who are ripped away from their homes and families, and their families are likely killed, and they're taken as captives, forced to serve a foreign king. Then a few years later, their home, Jerusalem, is attacked again and burned to the ground and thousands, countless thousands of God's people are murdered. And then across the span of the book, we see all sorts of trials and challenges for God's people. They're thrown into the fiery furnace. They're thrown before lions. See, the, the book of Daniel makes clear, yes, God is king. But until the day when he returns, his people will be persecuted. That's the pattern of history. And that's what we see right throughout history. Uh, for the first few hundred years after Jesus, God's people were butchered, they were tortured, they were thrown before lions. In the 1500s and 1600s in Japan, uh, hundreds of Christians were killed for being Christians. In India, in the 1990s and 2000s, our Christians were regularly attacked and beaten and churches were burned down. Even today in the Middle East and in North Africa, the persecution of Christians has been described as coming close to genocide. This is the pattern of human history. God's people will be persecuted. And Daniel 8 shows us that that's what we should expect as God's people. There'll come a day, even here in the West, where Christians will lose their jobs for their beliefs, where Christians will be taken to court for their beliefs, where Christians will be put in jail for their beliefs. Is that your expectation when you hear that God is King? Because that's the picture of Daniel 8. Yes, God is King, but still His people will be persecuted. And so then, how do we find hope in the face of such persecution? What's well, the fact that God is still king and God will forever be king? See, God is the king of history. He knows history. He knows that history is filled with worldly powers that rise and fall. He knows that people pass away and he knows that his people will suffer at the hands of them. But ultimately, 
the end of history is that God's hand will be a hand of delivery. He'll bring judgment on the evil and deliverance for His people. Because not long after Antiochus came the Lord Jesus and He spoke of a greater delivery. A delivery not from the persecution of wicked rulers, but delivery from sin and death, our ultimate enemy. And this was the deliverance brought about by Jesus' own death on the cross. The much greater desolation of God's temple, all to rescue and deliver God's people. And so that's why as God's people, we're people of hope. Hope born in suffering, but hope nonetheless. Because we know that God is King and God will forever be King. Now, there's a Christian song, I don't know if you know it, it's called, There is a Higher Throne. And in a sense, that's what Daniel 8 is about. It starts with these words, There is a higher throne than all the world has known. And that's what Daniel 8 is about. There is a higher throne, a higher throne than the Medes and the Persians, a higher throne than Alexander the Great, a higher throne than Antiochus Epiphanes, a higher throne than Daniel Andrews or Scott Morrison, there's a higher throne above them all. And God is the one on that throne. And He rules from beginning to end. He's the ruling hand over all of history. And He has promised us deliverance. And so, at the start we asked, well, how can we make sure, how can we be sure that we're on the winning side of history? The winning side of not just a fencing match or an exam, but of all of human history. And Daniel 8 tells us that to be on the winning side of history, we have to be on the side of the one who holds history in his hand, on the side of the one who has the final word. And Daniel 8 makes so clear to us that the final word is not by the ram, or by the goat, or by the horn, it's by the lamb. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you that you are the king of history. We thank you that uh, while worldly powers rise and fall, still you remain and still you are king. Still you are on the throne above worldly powers. And so we pray that uh, when, not if, but when we face persecution, uh, we would remember that, that we would take great heart in that. And we would take heart that we know you will will and do limit that persecution, that ultimately one day you will bring about victory. Father, we particularly thank you for Jesus and his life and death on the cross for our sake, to deliver us not just from worldly powers, not just from persecution, but to deliver us from sin and from death. And so we thank you that because of him, we can have such hope even in the face of persecution. And so, Father, we do thank you that the final word is indeed by you, not by worldly powers, but by you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.